It's good to see all of you. Missed you all while I was away. The family was away. It was a great trip. It was nice to get back and see family. It's always refreshing to to reunite with your family members. And I was given the blessed privilege to officiate my nephew's wedding, which went great. And it was a real blessing. And uh, it was a good time. You know, it's just a little rushed. And we spent most of our time on the road. So bear with me today because I am still, I'm getting old, right? I'm still recovering from road trips. Wow. Turn your Bibles if you would today. We're going to pick up in 1 Samuel 19, still going through the first 10 verses. Excuse me. 1 Samuel chapter 19, 1 through 10. First Samuel chapter 19, 1 through 10 reads, And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all of his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father, Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you, and if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all of Israel. You saw and you rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without a cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in the presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped. That night, let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning. We ask, oh God, that you would remove anything out of the way that would keep us from hearing what you would have to speak to us this morning. Lord, we ask, God, that we would be a humble people before your sight and before others. That it be a true humility, Lord. And our hearts would burn for thee, O God. And we would seek, Lord, nothing else than to see you high and lifted up in the congregation of the righteous. Lord, I would appeal to you this morning, Lord, and ask thee, O God, that you would help me. Help me proclaim your word, Lord. Enable your servant, Lord, to honor you 
by the preaching of your word and by the preaching of your son. And this I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, a brief summary of what we've already been through, kind of refresh everybody so we can kind of get back on track and get acclimated uh, to what is going on here. As we looked at from the beginning of this chapter up, to, up until now, <clears throat> we witnessed the tension between Saul, Jonathan, and David. David slaughtered Goliath in one of the most decisive battles in the history of Israel. God would not be mocked. Saul's jealousy reached its climax when they returned home and were met with a parade of singing and dancing women exalting David instead of Saul. Full of envy, Saul, it was said, eyed him from that day forward, plotting relentlessly on how he might remove David from stealing his kingdom and his own glory. We discussed the differences from the life of David opposed to the life of Saul. One was filled with humility and respect and steadfast love toward God, while the other was filled with selfish ambition and vain glory. Even Saul could not convince his son Jonathan nor his servants to join him in his murderous plots to kill David. Jonathan, the Bible says, delighted much in David and provided an escape for David by revealing to David his father's plans to exterminate him. But Jonathan also confronted his father by reminding him of all that David had sacrificed for Saul in order to honor him and chiefly to honor God. Then in verse 6 says that Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan and swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. As with everything that Saul says, he played the hypocrite in this as well, and we shall see. Everything was reported to David, and now David is set out for one of the most excruciating trials of his life. The very trials that would transform him into the king that would restore the kingdom and point to our future and everlasting king, and that is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Which brings us to verse 8. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Today's focus primarily will be on verse 8 in its correlation to the narrative that is set before us. Point number one being, and there was war again. And this is obviously referring to David's reoccurring battles against the Philistines. And here at this point, there was somewhat of a ceasefire between Saul and David, thanks to Jonathan. But it was only a small break, a moment to breathe before war broke out again. Can't you see the correlation here at all? It's just like it's this one thing after another, one battle after another. 
You could hear many of us say in our own hearts and minds that when we go through similar experiences in our lives where it seems that we just get a moment, right, of solace, a moment where things break a little bit. We get just a little bit of rest, and then it's just before ready to take another step, we step right in to another hornet's nest. We step right in to another battle. And if we don't understand as Christians how to operate in this lifestyle of a believer, we are going to get thrown off course. We're going to find ourselves slipping into a worldly mindset. Or as David, we allow these troubles, we allow these wars that continually happen in the Christian life to not only um, sharpen us and grow us, but also keep us consistent and allow the tribulations and persecutions and troubles and even sin in our life to transform us more in the image of God's Son. And this is the idea that we want to have this morning. First, we saw David's battle with Goliath. And then right after that, this long and grueling, victorious campaign against the Philistines. And now the Bible says there is war again. We can see this played out in the life of David all the way up until he became king. And we know his life from that point on. I like what Ray Comfort says. He says there's four things promised to the Christian in this life. Persecution, tribulations, trials, and most importantly, eternal life. You see, the Lord trains his people most of the time, we can be trained being comfortable, don't get me wrong. But most of the time, when we are truly trained by the Lord, it's usually through the most difficult trials, the hardest of times, right? And it could be your besetting sin, right? The one that entangles you the most. It just seems like there's this situation after situation after situation where these things are continually being brought up. And why is that? To teach us, right? To train us, that we learn what biblical repentance looks like and come out of that, but also understanding the war at hand for the believer, knowing full well it's not a physical battle, right? That our battles are taking places, right? In heavenly places. The Lord trains his people in the, advers in, 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 in the adversity and in pain in our lives. Look at Judges chapter 3, 1 and 2. It's interesting. It says, now these are the nations which the Lord left. Why would the Lord leave these nations there? Well, it says that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be what? Taught to know war at least those who had not formally, formally had known it before. God has a way of training us. And it isn't always the way that we want to be trained. Could you imagine going and getting a personal trainer at the gym and telling him everything that you want him to do for you? <laughs> what a mess, right? No, you go there and you submit to the process because you know at the end of the day, maybe not that day, 
But over a period of months, right, and even years, you are going to see the results from submitting to someone who knows better than you do and is not afraid to make you feel uncomfortable. It is true. We have to also understand that the Bible says we need to be sober. We need to be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, yes, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, like a roaring lion. He's not a roaring lion. He walks around and pretends to be one, seeking whom he may devour. You see, you got to understand something. You know, we may have moments of rest in our lives where it just seems like, hey, you know what? Things have calmed down a little bit. It's time to reacclimate ourselves, you know, but I'll tell you something. Satan doesn't rest. He's a supernatural being. He's not a human being. He's a supernatural being. He's had a lot of practice over the, what, six to 10,000 years. He's perfected. He's perfected the idea and how to attack the saints. Satan doesn't rest. He's like the adulterous woman spoken about in Proverbs 6.26, in whom the Bible says, hunts for the precious life. That's right. He hunts for the precious life. He hunts for you. Do you understand that? He is hunting you down, whether you believe it or not. Your theology will not prove this principle away. He is after you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to annihilate you. He wants to kill you. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your children. He wants to destroy everything if he can't completely take you completely out of this world himself. You are Satan's enemy. We have to come to that conclusion this morning, and we need to understand that. Paul states in Ephesians 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts and wickedness in heavenly places. Do you believe this, brothers and sisters? Do you believe this is actually a real battle going on? Or do you think all those things just disappeared at the cross? I tell you what, the battles still take place in my life. That's right. There are still these wicked, wicked spirits in high places. If you don't believe this, I would guess that there's not a lot of growth in your life. It's true. We have to understand how to fight, not with like this. I mean, that's always good as well. But the reality is we have to understand that we're not fighting against human beings. And if we're not those men and women who are driven to our knees and driven to the word of God, knowing what kind of exercises, if I could use that word, to combat the enemy, coming to the enemy in the name of the Lord. I'm not going to get into a whole uh, sideline episode here of all the ways that we fight the enemy, but I would tell you this much. We must fight the enemy in the name of the Lord. We must know his word. The most vulnerable people by the cults are Christians that don't know the word of God. It's terrible. It leaves you wide open to fall prey for every wind of doctrine. 
We need to know the word. We need to be those who pray and seek God diligently and daily. Remember the Bible says that David was a man of war. He was a man of war. But in Exodus 15, chapter 15, verse 3 says that the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. A man of war can be extremely terrifying, but not as terrifying as the man of war. Remember, it was God who destroyed Goliath. David was just his instrument. Deuteronomy 20, verse 4 says, For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. And here we see David once again headlong into battle against the Philistines. And it seems, as you we've all read this chapter probably many times, but it seems to show that the more successful David became, the more vile Saul became. You see the difference there? You see what's going on there? Because in verse 9 it says that an evil spirit from the Lord, and this is right after verse 8. We all know how to count, right? This is right after verse 8, right into 9. It shows that David had went back out into battle. And the next thing you know, you see Verse 9 says that an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that, the, so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. You've heard the saying, success is the greatest form of revenge. And I believe David's victories over the Philistines only increased Saul's hatred for David and Saul's hatred towards God. This principle has been tried and proven. The Lord was allowing the success of David to actually aggravate Saul into a deeper, insatiable desire to destroy David, which would eventually destroy Saul and his son, Jonathan. It really is interesting to see how the Lord works in particular scenarios like this and how this idea of, of using David's success to provoke Saul to a greater level of, level of hatred, which only meant that he pursued David harder. And in his pursuing of David harder, David only grew mightier. In the process, there was a process there that God uses. I mean, it's interesting. God will use our enemies, right? To punish his people and then turn right around and punish the enemies for punishing his people. And that's how God works. You know, we see it time and time throughout scripture. It's really, you know, it's really the mercy of God. We live in a, a very America is, 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 is the, you know, we have this idea that the church should function like a business, right? It's like an entre, entrepreneurial type of view of the church is that if we do every A, B, and C, everything's going to go great. We're going to have money. We're going to have people. And the church is going to get really big and look really great. 
you know, and it's, it's, it's like we get these ideas in our brains and it's, it's, it's totally contrary to what the Bible says, you know, and I think we have to literally purge ourselves uh, of these ideas. And I know many of you have, right? That's why you're here. Um, <clears throat> it's, it, it's, it is a constant battle with the heart though, right? It's a constant battle with the heart, my own heart. You know, there are times where I'll even think to myself, I just wish things could be better. Yeah, things could be better, but they've got to be according to God's will. And whether they get better or they don't get better shouldn't determine whether or not we continue or don't continue. Because why? Because if they don't get better, what is God essentially doing here? He's transforming you. That's right. Isn't that exactly right? Hope deferred makes the heart sick, right? But when it comes to tree of life, it's in the deferment. It's in the sickness is where we grow. Not always the tree of life, right? And this is one of those things we have to understand. If we can just learn to operate in the deferment of life, it hasn't come yet. Waiting for this to come. I have a great desire. I know God has called me to do this. I know the Lord is going to do something, but it may not be right now because he's not finished doing something in me. Oh, if you would give me all these things right now, I would literally unravel and spoil like an apple. I'm not ready for it. If your character and your integrity isn't ready and responsible, be ready to be made accountable of what God's going to give you, it'll only destroy you. You think you need it because you want it because your heart is, I don't want to use the word greedy, but your heart's desperate for change because you're tired, sick and tired of your situation. But it's in that sick and tiredness that we shine the most. It's in those places where nobody sees us. It's easy. Well, it's not easy to get behind this pulpit. It's actually very hard. But the reality is that I can come up here. You know, I can bedazzle everybody in a lot of pulpits, bewitch everybody, right? I can be up here and put on a good performance in front of all of you and get the little pat on the back and all of that and go home just as merry as can be. But then get in my, in my own house and I'm just like Eeyore. Or I'm angry or miserable and nothing like what I put on at church, right? Completely different. You put this little mask on and you walk in and you can sit there and you can just, you can deceive everybody, right? And then you go home and the real you comes out. Unless you're obviously, well, if you're single. So you're going to go home to yourself. I mean, I, I guess. But the reality is that's worse, yes. You know, that's why it, it's really hard to fake it when you've got, when you're married and you have children, because they all know the real you, right? And uh, that's where the rubber hits the road. Brings us to their second point. David went out and fought. David went out and he fought. It says in Verse 8, and there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines, and he struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. You know, and this is a question, and I, and I don't mean to pose this to you and be in, in mocking and, and you know, um, condemning, right? Because we all, there's not anybody in here that doesn't need work 
right? I'm going out. I mean, right here, right? Um, but the reality is, can this be said of us? You know, I mean, are we the type of people that, you know, would go out and fight, get out there and, and, and do what the Lord has called us to do? This was David's key feature, which not only propelled him into power, but let's remember, it kept him there as well. It's one thing to have a mountaintop experience only to find yourself the next morning crashing to the ground. David is known for his brutality and skill against his enemies, but was unmoved by the applause of men. He just remained consistent in his calling. And that's just it, isn't it? It's remaining consistent in our calling. Whatever God has called you to do, regardless of what it is and how valuable you may think it is, we are to be consistent in wherever the Lord calls us, whatever that may be. And it says that David went out and fought and he struck a great blow. I'll tell you one thing, you strike a good blow at your enemy, they will have a respect for you. They may not like you, but I tell you one, tell you, my dad always told me when I was a kid, he said, if you're ever going to get in a fight, hit first and hit hard. That works. And he said, they'll never forget you and they'll always respect you, but they may not like you. You know, this is really the, the feature that drew Jonathan to David. And this is actually what drew the affections, as we read, of the armies of Israel towards David. David was a true leader. People follow strength, not titles, brothers and sisters. I could have 20 degrees and it means absolutely nothing if I don't have integrity and character. Nothing. I can try to bedazzle you with all the... Hey, there's nothing wrong. We've already talked about this before. I don't want to beat a dead horse here. But what I would say is this. Going to college and learning is fantastic. Getting a diploma or degree are excellent. But if you just get one of those to hide behind because you think somehow it's going to give others the impression that you're great, you're fooled. Because consistency with integrity and character is the key ingredient for any leader. And without that, it doesn't matter what you have, you will fall to pieces. David fought, as, a, as from what I've seen from right at the get-go, from the Goliath situation all the way up until we are, are where we're at now, it seems that Saul was only a spectator while David was really the participator. Spectating and watching and being amused at other people's successes or failures, right? I imagine that day uh, at the Valley of Elah, when Saul watched this fight, he was probably thinking in his mind, going to be honest, speculation, that David is going to get destroyed, right? And he was going to watch this kid get whipped. But when it turned around and David destroyed Goliath, it shook the entire nation on both sides. See, we're not called, brothers and sisters, to be spectators, but participators in the field of battle. 
There's nothing worse than Christians who do nothing but amuse themselves with the battles of others. Instead of bravely engaging in battle, they prefer to sit in the concession stand and bellyache about the snacks. True? There's one story about a famous battle. Any, any historians in here today? There's one uh, story about a famous battle that took place during the Civil War, which brings this point out well. It was said in a document I was reading, it is a popular, almost legendary story that innumerable civilians armed with picnic baskets followed the Union Army out from Washington in July 1861 to watch what everyone thought would be the climatic battle of a short rebellion. And that was the Battle of Manassas. Just familiar with that. It was said that throngs of sightseers came in all manner of ways, some in stylish carriages, others in city hacks, and still others in buggies, on horseback, and even on foot. All manner of people were represented in this crowd from the most grave and noble senators to hotel waiters. The spectators, one person wrote thus, he said, the spectators were all excited and a lady with an opera glass who was near me was quite beside herself when an unusually heavy discharge roused the current of her blood. She said, that is splendid. Oh my, is not that first rate? Well, the battle didn't go as planned and the Union Army in sheer panic began to retreat. Retreating can be done successfully, by the way. It can give an army time to recover and reevaluate their failure and return later for a better outcome. But in this case, because the decision to evacuate was immediate, the curiosity seekers got caught in the stampede of the retreating Union troops. You see, the spectators caused these onlookers who came only to be entertained would be the cause for more casualties, and many of them died or were even captured by the enemy. See, it was said that they clogged up the retreat. So when they saw this danger upon them, the Union Army took off only to trip over all the spectators on their way out. It just became a big scrambled mess, right? And because of that, more of the Union soldiers were either captured, some of the spectators were captured, and many more casualties took place because those spectators were there to see a good show. Much of the mess we see today, I believe, in the Christian church, we are either retreating from the enemy, hiding from the enemy, or joining the enemy. We are either moving forward or we are clogging the path of others by our inaction. But we must remember, yes, it was the Lord who delivered David from his enemies, but it was David's integrity and character that gave him stability and durability. You don't hear much about this um, a lot of the times. At least, I mean, a lot of the sermons that I hear are, always fantastic and I really get a lot out of them. Mr. MacArthur, Washer, a lot of these guys I just I just love. But 
one of the things that, you know, it can rejuvenate you to hear um, other sermons and to glean from them. But a lot of the time they, they circumnavigate around the most important issues of the time. And that really is our integrity and our character. Proverbs 11.3 says the integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous only destroys them. Psalms 41 verse 11 and 12 says, I know that you are pleased with me. For my enemy does not triumph over me. Because of my integrity, you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. David persevered even when he was attacked on the outside and both on the inside of his own home. David was not an entertainer. His life was dedicated to being seen by others, but his life was dedicated to his Lord and to the people. His life wasn't dedicated to be seen by others. His life was dedicated to the Lord and to lead God's people. And this is why he was respected and admired by all, even his enemies. He developed a reputation by being experienced in warfare. God will train you himself if you are not willing to discipline yourself. I like what uh, Psalms 144 says. David said, Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Jesus says the same thing to us, not in the physical sense, but rather in the spiritual sense. In Mark 16, 15, where he said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We don't demolish the enemy as in David's day, but instead, as 2 Corinthians 10.4 says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And that's the type of people that we need to be. Amen. Especially in a day that we live in today. Well, it's easy, isn't it, to kind of get in the humdrum of church services and church things and, um, you know, just being around Christians all the time. It's like a lot of times we can we can kind of just lose sight of of what is going on in a spiritual sense in our world. And like me, a lot of the times I will falter and default into just getting angry at everything and everyone. Instead of really stopping for just a moment and realizing, why in the world are you so angry? Pray. You're doing nothing but being angry. And nothing ever gets solved by just being angry. The Bible says, yeah, be angry and sin not. There is a true thing called righteous indignation. But the reality is, is that we need to stop for just a moment before we jump the gun and attack somebody with our mouths or physically or whatever and think it through and pray. I mean, this is probably, probably one of my biggest faults a lot of the times is that I don't stop before I open my mouth, right? And then I catch myself, confess my sin, repent, ask God to forgive me, and to restore me, enable me, empower me to get the mind of Christ, the heart of God, 
and start dealing with these situations according to the Bible and not according to my own flesh. It's a practicing, isn't it? It does take practice. It takes diligence. It takes every day to literally harness ourselves in by the word of God to keep us in that place. Because I'll tell you what, I love being in that place. I mean, there is no greater pleasure to me to be able to control my tongue and then notice that. Not that I take, you know, pride in myself or look at me, but I do say, wow, Lord, you're doing a great work in me. You know, you're, 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 you're helping me. And I, I tell you, there's no better place to be is when you're walking right before the Lord. There's nothing in this world that can substitute that. You know, and I think a lot of the times we can get bewitched by our own hearts and think there's a better way or there's another way. If only just do this and do this. But I'll tell you something, when you're right with the Lord, there's just no better place to be. The Bible says that a clean conscience is a continual feast. I prefer to be in a continual feast, right? Than to be plowing against the Lord. It really is. This brings us to our third and last point. They fled before him. They fled before him. Do you imagine being in those campaigns with David? It doesn't even say how big of army even went out with him. We know at one point he was leading like a thousand men. So it could possibly be that. We just don't know. But the interesting thing is we do know is that the enemy ran away from him, fled from him. And that really is a picture of our Lord, our Savior, our King, our Conqueror. Jesus Christ himself. Trust me, he's not afraid of anybody. He's not afraid of your sin. He's not afraid of you. There's not a person on this planet or a power on this planet, not even Satan himself, that God fears. They fled before him. David's experience through constant warfare honed him into the king that would that, would, that could rule the nation of Israel. Nothing could have prepared him any other way. There is no easy way, if we could use the word, to the top. Every calling comes with a price. Those of you today who are, you know, we're all, we're all called to live a holy and godly life. We really are. Scripture's clear on that. Each Christian has a calling. You're called to your own home. Right? You're called to minister to your family. So the greatest callings of all time is the calling by which every other calling is judged by and qualified by is your marriage and your family life. This is clearly seen in Scripture. But those of you who are involved in ministry right now, I'd like to ask you a, a question this morning. I mean, are you, are you in a place to where you can confidently say that the calling that God has laid upon you is in alignment with your lifestyle at home? Or your own personal life? 
saying, well, I just got this ministry. It's so robust. It's so fired up. People getting saved, people loving me, doing this, this, and this. But yet in your own home, it looks like a, it looks like a battle field. And the sad thing is all the casualties are your family members. Consider this this morning. I'm not asking for anybody to raise their hands, but I am saying this. If you're out in public and people are seeing you in public, but you're not at all the person behind the scenes in your own home, you need to step down or step away for a while. That's your first and primary ministries in the home with your families. And, you know, and that same goes for me as well. And let me just say something real quick for y'all thinking I'm up here thinking I got it all together. You can tell my wife I don't have it all together. She will tell you I don't have it all together. She'll tell you I make one mistake after another. But the point is, are you pursuing your family? Not that you're going to make mistakes, drop the ball, screw up and have the big fight before you get to church like we all do, right? But the reality, that's not, that's not anything we're here. It's, just, it's, 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 the, it's the point of where you're putting all of your effort, all of your energy, because somehow you think this ministry is going to grant you an identity. And that's the sad thing because identity is strong. Identity is super strong. Because people do almost anything to have an identity. That's why people, that's why young kids get involved in gangs, right? Because they want to feel that sense of belonging with the community, right? We see these types of things, right? It's true. We all want belonging. We all want identity. But if your identity is not in Christ and you're looking for your identity in other things, I would warn you severely to make sure that your heart is in the right place. I'll digress. In James 4, verse 7, it says, he says, therefore, submit to God, right? Therefore, first, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will most certainly flee from you. We need to submit to God. You know, it's, it, it's you know, even collectively as the body here at 116, I mean, I find myself so convicted by being around a lot of you here in this small assembly, just by your love, your generosity, your grace, your friendship, uh, so much fruit I see in your lives. And, and, and at times I just feel this weight, like, Lord, I, I, I'm so honored to, to, to be a part of this church. I'm so honored to be numbered with a family like this. I, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve it, right? And I never will. But I am just so, so, trust me when I say this, I'm so grateful uh, to be a part of this family here. I really am. I don't say that uh, for any other reason uh, other than honesty. I truly love you guys. I really do. I, I really love you guys. And, I, and, I, and when I was away, I, I really missed all of you. I was even texting Jerry on the way home or on the way there. I just needing some friendship from the body of Christ, you know, just, um, it's just a wonderful place to be. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow. So they all fled before him. And this is really ultimately, if we could combine, well, just take this verse, we could really see within the context of the verse, we can see the gospel. We can see the biblical 
gospel there. Yes, there is war, right? There's always going to be war for us this side of heaven, right? Yes, we are converted. We are justified. But that's when the war truly begins, right? But the war is over for Christ. He defeated the enemy. The Bible said he took upon himself the full and total wrath of God upon himself. He was born under the law the law of God, and he satisfied all of the covenantal requirements of God in himself. He was born of a virgin. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He lived a perfect life in thought, deed, and word. He not only died for us, brothers and sisters, but he lived for us, and thank God that he did. And he went to the grave, and he sanctified the grave. And three days later, he rose from the dead defeating death, hell, and the grave. Once and for all. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the last enemy that will be destroyed, thank God, is death. For he has put all things under his feet. That is our Lord. And I believe the enemy flees as well when we are obedient to this truth. Not just hearing the truth, but obeying the truth. Saul was a pretender. He loved the power and the applause. But as soon as that was taken away, he turned into a raging maniac. Let us not be the raging maniac when we don't get our way. or We see somebody else have a position that we most certainly would like. Or this person gets blessed in an area that you're not where, you, where, where, where they are. And you find yourself getting bitter. You find yourself getting envious. You find yourself jealous. And then the next thing you know, you're living in absolute utter rebellion and in bitterness against God and the saints. Ephesians 6 says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We got to understand something here. Christ is our armor. He is our shield. He is the word of God revealed. Christ is our David, who not only annihilated the Philistines in the time past, but as James 4, 7 says, for this purpose, the son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And this is our hope. And it's the finality of our faith. To remember this, there was war again. Your life is going to be filled with war, okay? Just, if you didn't know that up until this point of this sermon today, welcome to biblical Christianity, right? David went out. He didn't stay home, okay? And not only that, he went out and struck a great blow. No credit to David, David is just a man like us, a sinful man. You know, we know there was a time where he didn't go out to battle like he should, right? He stayed home in bed. And instead, he's peeking out at Bathsheba, taking a bath. That's what idleness does, right? Let's not waste any time. Let's obey Christ. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Let's do that. Wherever he places you, there shine. And know this. The enemies will flee. They may not flee in this life 
our own personal lives. But there will come a time where you will flee all that's in this world and be with Christ perpetually in his kingdom and in his glory forever. Let's pray.